This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Ever since their birth, movies have inspired dreams of romance, adventure, stardom, and better-looking homes. From the Art Deco fantasies of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies and the high glamour of Cedric Gibbons, to the futuristic visions, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Blade Runner, to the comedies of Nancy Meyer that launched a thousand kitchen renovations, sets have shaped the way we see the world and how we want to live. I'm pleased to have with me today three set decorators whose work in movies and television have helped bring to life stories of the past and present and shaped our dreams and desires. First is Elizabeth Keenan, who was just nominated for an Academy Award for her work on News of the World, starring Tom Hanks and directed by Paul Greengrass. She's currently at work on Bullet Train, an action film starring Brad Pitt and Michael Shannon. Hello and congratulations, Elizabeth. Good morning. Thank you so much. I'm also pleased to have with us Jessica Petricelli, who recently designed the charming HBO Max mystery series, The Flight Attendant, and also worked on Broad City and Russian Doll, for which she was awarded an Emmy. Welcome, Jessica. So glad to be here. Finally, we have eight-time Emmy nominee Ellen J. Brill, who has worked on four seasons of American Horror Story, the Reese Witherspoon movie Home Again, and Bombshell. And she's just begun work on the Aaron Sorkin film, being the Ricardos about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz and starring Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. Hello, Ellen. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I wanted to get started. First, a lesson I've learned, what exactly a set decorator does and how it's different from a set designer. Because unlike the interior design world where people use the word decorator and designer interchangeably, I understand that it's very different in the movies and television. So why don't we start with you, Ellen? Well, this is a real bone of contention, actually, in our business. Oh, (laughs) we love that. Right to the point. The set designer is actually a drafts person, and they help with the art direction, with the art director and the production designer to create and really draw the sets. The set decorator is like the interior designer. We are responsible for all the soft goods, hard goods, everything in this, all the decoration down to the minutiae, the very small ephemeris, as well as reupholstering and drapery. And and you find a lot of this stuff. We for buy the set. a lot of that. Okay. So Jessica, I wanted to ask you, How did you get into this field? Were you in design originally? Or were you a student of film, television? How did it happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple things. I actually grew up, both of my parents were sort of in the theater world. My dad was a stage manager and my mom was a principal dancer actually with the Boston Ballet. So there was a little bit of theater sort of swirling around. family. Yeah. And so, you know, growing up, there was just stuff in the house that, you know, like they didn't hire a decorator, but there were things that had character, things that had been collected. And I think my dad, when he started out, he was like a prop man and he would go door to door 
door finding we're you know, we're doing this show. We need this kind of antique. What do you like truly door to door trying to find this stuff? So I think it's, there's definitely a little bit of that. What's, which is embedded earlier on when I went to school, I went to Emerson and I'm also from Boston. So I was one of the few people that my house was not far away. So when they needed a production designer, I had stuff so I could bring, you know, I would just load the U-Haul with things from my parents' house. Oh, Jessica, I'll get that box or bureau or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it was, and you know, in, in a time when like, you're really at the beginning, right? Like really in school or whatever, and people are filming in like dorm rooms and that never really looks good. It was real luck that I was able to bring actual things. So you started so. working on student films. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Terrific. And then how did you end up working professionally in Hollywood? Yeah. I mean, the transition was interesting. I remember I had just graduated. I had worked on a few grad projects and was really eager to jump in. So I was applying to a lot of different, anything that sort of fit that criteria. And it was actually the Onion News Network used to have web series. And I remember seeing the job. It was just the right amount of experience that I had that they needed because, you know, they were short, episodic. And I remember applying to the job and thinking, I'm never going to get this. It was in New York, still lived in Boston. I remember going to the interview and sort of had just a confidence because it was like, oh, I'm probably not going to get this. And I remember pretending I lived in New York. And honestly, it was a great introduction because, again, it was smaller vignettes, but it was an incredible way to learn how to work in New York. So you had to be quick, I imagine, oh, yes. if they were doing like, yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right. Elizabeth, what about you? What, what was your background? I had always been a creative kid, staying up all night, building apartment complexes with all the chained hanging lamps and all the little details. I had two very creative grandmothers. One was a painter and the other one collected antiques in Texas. And so they were both kind of larger than life and wonderful. And my mother was a jewelry designer and my parents nurtured the creativity. And I eventually went to school double majored in advertising and psychology. And the advertising, I think, was a way to support myself and still be creative. I wasn't aware of film being even an option at that time. And after being in that business for about 15 years in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, kind of all over the place, I always noticed that the production side of commercial making, they were always having so much more fun because we were so stressed out with deadlines and client demands and account executives promising things being delivered without consulting us. So that 15 years of that will grind you down. And a friend of mine had an opportunity to go to Prague in the Czech Republic to shoot a film. And he said, if you want to come along with me and try to get a job on this film, let's do it. And it was a big gamble. And um, I've always been a big gambler. And I packed my apartment up in San Francisco and off I went. And sure enough, that night I had dinner with the directors and the DP and the production designer and got a job. And that changed my life forever. I was on set. I was an on-set dresser, kind of an assistant PA. And it blew me away. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the family orientation of a whole group of people from all over the world being together in a country that didn't speak English as a first language. And the storytelling of it all and the locations were phenomenal. And Martin Childs production designed this first film called From Hell. It was the Hughes brothers with Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. And after that, I moved to LA and started my career over from the bottom. 
And I had jobs as swing gang on the trucks, even though I had been pretty high up in advertising, I really started over and made no money my first year, but I had saved and invested. So I was okay for a while, but I loved every bit of it. And I slowly moved up from there and set dressing and then buying and then on set dressing and then slowly becoming a decorator. And Ellen, what about your background? How did you get into this? Well, my mother actually did hire us an interior decorator. (laughs) And I always thought we had really, I didn't really understand, but this decorator was really fabulous. And we moved into a house in the early 60s that was a mid-century modern house. And he totally redid all of our furniture. And I just realized that there was a world, my parents, neither of which were very creative. So I did take ballet. I I took piano. I did all those kind of things, but I didn't really understand how my creativity would come out. And then when I was in my early twenties, all my friends would ask me to rearrange their furniture. And they always said, God, you have such a good eye for spatial this or that. Cut to, I went into the fashion business, which I did I was there until around 35 years old. And then I decided to go back to school and studied interior design because I had a friend who had an incredible style and taste and she was a designer. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll be an interior designer. So I went to school for that. And when I got out of school, I realized that people were making very little money as a junior interior designer. And I was already 40. And so I was like... I think I better figure this out. And I had a couple of friends that were set decorators. I met an architect who said that he was just starting to production design. And I thought, ah, this is the kind of thing. It was non-union. I was asked if I wanted to be an intern, which I did do. And I did everything. I learned how to paint flats. I learned how to make gardens. We did everything on those kind of films. And that's really how I got a start. And then we rolled into another job that was actual a more official job. I think I was was making $90 a week and I left the other business because I thought I wasn't going to make any money. (laughs) But eventually you, you know. Well, the passion of you pays off. Exactly. Pays off. Now it's interesting because I mean, you talked about interior design and Elizabeth, you mentioned psychology. And I think for an interior designer, you have to understand your clients. So psychology is important. But for you guys, you have to understand, A, abstract characters who don't really exist and work with the director. I'd love to know, how does it work? Are you guys given a script that you then go through? You meet with the set designer? How does it work? I'd love to get a sense of the process. You know, because sometimes you're doing contemporary stories. Sometimes you're doing period stories, westerns, different genres, horror. How does it work? Jessica, why don't you start? Yeah, I mean, it certainly starts with the script. We all, you know, we get the script and we read that, break that down and kind of see what descriptions might be in there, what we can gain and sort of understand about the characters from that. And then it's really meeting with the designer because they're usually brought on because they've sort of conceptualized some ideas there of what it's going to look like. What are the colors? What's the mood? All of that. And so that's definitely the jumping off point, I think, is working along with the production designer to see 
a little bit of what they envision. And then you start to bring in your own research and your own kind of little intricacies of these characters. Because the great thing about what we do is not just to like design these spaces, but we're also bringing in life layer. We're bringing in these little idiosyncratic moments that may not necessarily be sort of the design portfolio, but it's how people live. So yeah, that's how it starts. Right. And Elizabeth, are there things that you prefer? Like, would you prefer to do a contemporary story as opposed to a period story? Or do you like doing the research? What's your favorite kind of thing? Which which is easier? And is that what you like the best? Or, Well, I prefer to kind of do a 180 after each film. Or let's say I did a Western. And the last thing I just did was a big action film, which I had never done. And I wanted to do it because I wanted to learn how to conceptualize and build pieces for the set because a lot of films the furnishings don't exist i worked with karen o'hara another great set decorator as her assistant on alice in wonderland with tim burton oh yeah that was, that was a lot of some phenomenal <laughs> amazing antiques but we also conceptualized wallpaper and the thrones and all kinds of beds and strange things and to design that and have it made and have the fabric aged and texturized and that is really something else so i think that a challenge is always is more important to me than something that's easy and if something seems easy then it's not you have to create a world around it to find the interesting points and i think just as jessica said it's that script. You read it several times through, you break it down and you start to get a feel. And then you talk to the production designer and they will have conceptualized the whole film, hopefully almost entirely before you come on because they've pitched this idea to the director already. And then often we'll talk to the director and really get more input and more of their kind of background and back thinking of who these characters are. And then with our experience and our own research, we bring a lot more to the party. And it's kind of, I hate to use the word psychographics, but it's like, where did they go to school? What education level? What country are they in? How old are they? What do they eat? Where do they live? Where do they summer? Do they even have a house? And if it's a futuristic thing, you have to conceptualize all of that. And you do it with the production designer. It's basically the set decorator, the production designer, and the director conceiving the look of the film. Along with the cinematographer sometimes. Yes, absolutely. Lighting is critical. Oh, yeah. Cinematography is, of course, crucial. Ellen, you did four seasons of American Horror Story. Now, every season was totally Mm -hmm. different. So you met... The directors, Ryan, how did that work? Ryan Murphy? Well, on American Horror Story, we had a few different directors. Usually, if there were like 12 episodes, maybe we had seven or eight different directors. So typically, the directors were just kind of guest stars with a Ryan Murphy situation. He's he's the mastermind. Yes. I had also done Nip Tuck with him. So I was aware of his sensibility. He has a very interesting sensibility in that there's a real negative space aspect to how he likes to work, especially early on, which was great because we didn't have a ton of money. (laughs) So with American Horror Story, it was really in the concept of the script. When you first got the script of the first season, it described that house and the characters, and then you just kind of go from there. And I had never done horror. And coming from interior design world, my background, I'm very fearful of space. <laughs> I mean, like outer space, space. 
I wouldn't be probably great at Alice in Wonderland. We have find our niches a little bit and it is important to stretch. So American Horror Story was a great place for me to stretch because it was horror. And then we were in New Orleans and that was a whole new way to shop. And it was period. And they were all different. Then we were in an insane asylum and I had (laughs) all those metal beds. (laughs) And I hadn't really been in one of those before. We did padded cells there. We did all sorts of things. So That's what's so exciting and wonderful about this career is you just never know where it's going to take you. And it's kind of scary, though, at first, because you think, I just don't know if I I know how to do that. It's mind expanding to be able to like some of the situations and how you did that, how they shot with all the back and forth time period and blood. It was it was really great. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, Jessica, because like that very high-end hotel where the opening scene takes place, how did you go about fitting that out? Because it's like, in a way, I could see that a very personal home, which you had that crazy home, the suburban home where the parents of the murder, which was just as creepy as anything in the hotel, which was so interesting. I think a lot of people realize, and I think more people realize than you guys maybe even think, know how important those details are in creating the mood and the atmosphere. And I just loved how you took this sort of almost generic luxury hotel and made it into such a compelling space. And then you took a suburban house, which was so pretty and stuff from the outside and so disturbing once the character went in there. So how do you think about that? Because I think this is something that designers subconsciously do to try and make their clients happy. But I'd love it. You know, you guys have to be more explicit. So Jessica, could you talk a little about that? Yeah, I think a lot of what we do is also we create mood or we're really helping to create an emotional connection. I mean, I think that also is what, you know, sort of drew me to that. You're you're making an environment to like really feel the story. So I know working with Sarah K. White, who was the designer on The Flight Attendant, you know, she, we sort of, the architecture of that hotel room was very bizarre. It was almost like octagonal so that there were different areas you wouldn't see right away. And it kind of lent itself to some very unique pieces of furniture that maybe were not your typical sort of squared off pieces. So it definitely like, again, sort of starts there. And like, there was a real thought behind like having a lot of different types of glass. I remember, I think I spent the better part of a week just searching for special glass that we could get. Like, so we had that sort of textured rain glass running through the middle and just a lot of reflective surfaces. And, and sort of, as you're pointing out, a few like custom items. So it wasn't just your everyday sort of, not to say that, I mean, Lux Hotels, it's it's wonderful, not to to call them every day, but we were trying to also think about place. You know, we're in Bangkok. So we're trying to really incorporate those materials, raw silk. Kind of Asian feel that you brought to it. Exactly. And and like, you know, the lotus pattern, which is really important in that culture. And that kind of became a motif that you saw that came up in the fabrics and came up in the screens. But I mean, all of that kind of really thinking about different ways to obscure what's going on, because as she I mean, no spoilers, but to as she's thinking back on that night over and over again in, in the series, you know, it's not always so clear. And then it, sometimes it will become clear. So we were really trying to mirror that within the set. Right. Yeah. So and again, Elizabeth said a lot of blood in that episode. 
So how does that work just physically? Do you have to make like replicas of everything so that you can have the bloody version, the non-bloody version? I'm fascinated by the technical process. On Horror Story Hotel, I had so many sets of sheets. (laughs) I believe it. Lady Gaga's round bed. They were satin charmeuse and they were a specific color. And I don't even know how many we went through. And then the littler hotel rooms that we had tons. Yeah, you have to be prepared. Even with regular bedding, if there's actors in the bed and they have makeup on, you usually have to have at least three or four sets just for a normal shoot. And then when you add blood or any kind of weird stuff, then like we had, you know, somebody slicing up through a mattress and (laughs) things like that. Hi, everybody. I'm Anna Brockway, the co-founder and president of Cherish. Are you a designer struggling with really long lead times from your suppliers and increasingly impatient clients? In this need-it-now world, Cherish is more important than ever. Our vintage, antique, and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. I guess you have to take into account when they construct the set and when you design the set and bring in the materials, it's not just what we see because of what, you know, there's always the camera people, the giant cameras or whatever. So how did you take that into consideration? I'd love to get a sense like, Elizabeth, I mean, your last movie, your nominated movie, was a lot of it's outdoors, but, you know, the interiors, how did they construct these sets And how do you make them look real when there's actually, you know, no ceiling, there's no walls? How does that happen? Is that all worked out ahead of time through drawings? In that particular film, it was the first time I had ever done a Western. And, you know, I had massive amount of research to do and films to watch. And I was nervous. So I spent a lot of time filling up this with ideas of what to do and what not to do. That film, a lot of it you didn't see. There were a, the sets were big, and I was amazed at how much didn't make it into the film. And the research that one has to do, especially on a film like that, just to think about. I'm taking an aside here to research politically what was happening is so important to that film because it was post Civil War, and you're in Texas and you're on the frontier of Indian territory, and people had nothing. People were missing, and. There were notices all over town. Have you seen this person? Lists of missing soldiers. And so there's this layer of war-torn angst and people have nothing. They're poor. They're barely scraping by. So the sets needed to to reflect that and not be littered with stuff. So we're in smaller spaces. And I think, as we all know, as decorators, you have to think about the entire room. I know after scouts and talking with the DP and the director and production designer, kind of where we're looking and what we're doing, but that changes on shoot days sometimes. So you have to be prepared for the entire environment let's say one set was the wool barn. It opens the film and he goes in at night to this strange kind of a holding house, kind of a warehouse, if you will. And there's wool all over the place because people are sorting and packing wool. We dressed that entire thing, even up on the next level with, I don't know how many tons of wool and it was seeping through the floorboard. So you get that feeling that it's been there for a while. And I remember set dressers picking and pulling and um, it's like more and more and more. 
And you don't know what's going to end up on set, but you have to be prepared for everything. And that's to answer your question, how we address uh, a small room like that, or we move things around or get things out of the way for camera. And then they get placed right back if they do what called a turnaround and you're going to see the other side of the room. And also I'll leave, as you other decorators would do too, leave extra things for the onset dresser to work with. And that onset dresser is kind of our eyes and ears on set. So if we're not there and they're shooting in the middle of the night and they need extra bedding or extra blankets or extra kerosene lighting, we have a bunch of it standing by and it's all been selected and chosen for that particular set. Now, I want to get a sense from each of you, where do you find the things that you need? Because these sets are exquisitely detailed down to the smallest thing on a vanity or dining table, whatever. So where do you find, especially for period things, I, I know there's prop houses, professional prop houses, I'm sure you use, but I'd love to get a sense of where you find what you need. Cherish. So cherish is very, that's the right answer, Ellen. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have to say, I'm doing a 1950. One, two, 1952s. Right. This is the uh, Lucille Ball movie, Ricardo. I have gotten a lot from Cherish on this. This is a perfect example of how the internet works for us. And with COVID, I have to say, you just can't get out as much as you'd like to. So having a, something like Cherish has been incredibly important. You have to deal with the shipping and usually we'll have to reupholster because we have a very tight color scheme lots of times in our films. So it's part of the fun of shopping for fabrics and trim and, and all that kind of stuff. So finding the right shapes and right. the right period, right. because you just can't find that. And right. also, sometimes it's really hard when a, a show is just slightly older, like Bombshell. Right. That's the, a very hard, the nine, that's almost harder than doing 1950s or 1940s or 1870s or whatever. It's very interesting. Because it's not old enough to be considered vintage, exactly. I suppose. Exactly. It's just older. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, yeah, exactly. It's been put away somewhere. Exactly. Nobody's thought about it. Oh, um, interesting. So, interesting. And, and I wanted to speak to what Elizabeth was talking about. It's really interesting. And hopefully, as you get more experience to understand how the shooting crew needs to be in the space as well while they're there. And you have to maintain the set looking the way you want it to. For example, I, it just occurred to me on this one, we're bringing in these vintage cameras from 1950s and they're big. And I'm thinking, well, they're going to be there. And what about the real cameras that are actually going to shoot this thing? How, where are they going to go? You know, <laughs> I in the middle of the night, I woke up going, oh my God, we have to, re it's going to be a dance. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a factor. It's great to make a set, but if nobody exactly. can film it. And that's you know? part of it. It's this a technical area that you gain with expertise of knowing how does that work. Because I imagine it would be a nightmare if the cameraman were to swing the camera to follow something and there's no set there, that that was your blank space. I could see that that would be an issue. When I was first starting, they always said, oh, yeah, we're going to see this wall and that wall. And you don't have to dress those other two. I was like, I learned that right away as to what Elizabeth was talking. Jessica, what about you? You're working on a new show for Showtime. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Okay. 
where, where are you shopping for that? Tell us a little about that. And we'll- yeah, well, the, this show has been really, really fun. It's, you know, interesting what I think maybe Elizabeth, you were saying, but this idea of going back and forth on your jobs in terms of wanting to do a 180. The last job was the flight attendant. And it's like all of these sort of luxurious settings and, you know, glamorous bars, glamorous. Exactly. And right now, this whole show is set in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And it's very down to earth. And it's very it's like a totally different shopping experience, you know, and I love that. I love doing both. And to be honest, I missed a little bit of like getting a little more into the nitty gritty. Like we just did a set that is a roti patty shop that's supposed to be on Flatbush that's Trinidadian food. And so shopping for that, of course, is totally different. You know, you're you're looking for kitchen equipment, all the specific Caribbean food specifically from Trinidad. And we kind of, it's so fun to like dig into that and like go to the specific grocery stores and other patty shops, see what they have and bring that into your world. And also the research, the paper, the ephemera on the walls. We have someone on our crew who's from Trinidad and she was giving us a lot of great ideas for, you know, little phrases that I would never know. You know, we do the research anyways, but that just add that great like life layer. So again, a totally different experience than shopping on the flight attendant. Right. Yeah. And Elizabeth, what about for a Western? Where do you go shopping for a Western? Oh, boy. (laughs) Westerns are, you know, you really (laughs) have to, there's a cliche. It's, oh, it's barrels and boxes, barrels and sacks. So you really want to get out of that mindset. Yeah, the swinging doors into the saloon, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So you really want to come up with something different and not see the same old thing all the time. And that was tricky. And this is, to Jessica's point, the education that comes with this job, because you really have to educate yourself. It's like Trinidad. You know, you think about how people live. How do they eat? Why do they eat that? Their politics affects everything, especially down to kitchens and food. So we worked in New Mexico and shot in Santa Fe and ranches around there. There were two prop houses in Albuquerque. And I went to those two places and scrubbed them top to bottom in the heat and with a buyer, Anthony. And we dug through everything and then met a lot of unusual collectors. And Anthony Whitman, my main buyer on that film, had a lot of connections. And because he had been a big dealer and an antique dealer for a long time. So he was well connected in all these little towns. So we would go and meet these incredible people that I would have never met in my entire life. And we went to their homes and saw their private collections and attics and basements and huge yards, acreage full of unusual old farm equipment, military things, hides, buffalo heads, all kinds of stuff. And so that was incredibly fun. And then the thing about the internet, as Jessica and Ellen know, once you're done working all day and shopping and running around and visiting sets, and then at night is when you get online and you start searching for things. And I want to say one thing, this job I just finished, it's called Bullet Train, and it's set in Japan, present day. And there's a situation that happens in Kyoto. And Kyoto is a much more authentic, traditional town than Tokyo. And we had to create the exterior of a sake brewery. And I was looking for these beautiful balls of dried cedar that hang outside of sake distilleries. And the only place that had them was Cherish. And they had two of them, which was incredible. And (laughs) Japanese make these things out of fresh green leaves. And then when they completely turn brown, that's when you know the sake has brewed long enough and aged long enough and it's ready to drink. 
fascinating. That's amazing. I, exactly. And then I found two of them. It was, um, was miraculous. That's I actually fantastic. did Tom and Huck in Alabama early on in my career. And it was Tom Sawyer's story. Meeting the collectors, there are collectors for almost everything. And when you do go on location and you start to meet the locals, and what's amazing is they just want to give it to you sometimes. They're like, oh, please use it. And I had a couple of people said, oh, if you would just make a little card that said, as seen in Tom and Huck, that would be really sweet. And it was just lovely. People are amazing about showing you their creativity and their collections. That's where the fun comes in. Right. Well, also, I think it's, you know, movies and television are such powerful forces in our culture. And if somebody, oh, I, you know, you thought I was crazy to collect this, but look, it's in this movie. I mean, it's validation for them, which I think is a great thing. And there's nothing more wonderful than seeing your taste or your passion validated by the larger culture. So I can see they'd be happy to do that. I have a little anecdote. I was just at the Antique Mall in Pasadena the other day, this deco collector who I used a lot on American Horror Story Hotel, and they have four sconces on the wall. And there's a little sign that says, as seen in American Horror Story. And I got (laughs) such a kick out of it because it's been a while now. Yeah, you know, it's very right, sweet. Right. Now, I'd love to get a sense because you're all talking about your buyers and this. How big a crew just for this set decoration design? What's the usual size of your crew? Because I'm sure interior designers are going to want to know and say, well, I, I have a bigger staff than that. I have a smaller staff than that. How many people do you work with on the average project? Or is it bigger for movies than TV or the same? On this particular okay. one, I actually have two buyers. This is one of the only times I have had two buyers, I usually only have one. So this is a film. And I think because of COVID and because it's period, they are allowing me to have two. And then we have a lead man. And then there's a couple of gang bosses and set dressers. So the lead man is your logistical manager. He's the person or she is the person who helps coordinate how things are going to be picked up and gotten and fixed and this and that and gotten to the set. And keeps track of all the Yes. And he has a crew and the gang boss sets up the warehouse. I mean, there's a big machine that's working behind us. It's really unbelievable. It takes a village. Yeah. And what about you, Jessica? Is it the same with TV projects? I think there's a a pretty big range where, of course, on some small shows, I remember first season of Broad City, it was kind of like, I'm on my own. But, you know, usually there's always some help. But, you know, there is a range like the show I'm on right now. I have an assistant and a buyer, but on the flight attendant, there was more. So it's kind of about a little bit about, you know, what the budget will allow and what the job calls for. And how many episodes, I imagine, too. And how many episodes and how long. Um, So there's definitely a lot of factors, even for me. I'm mainly doing TV, but within TV, there's a a huge range depending on the project, I think. Right. right. And Elizabeth, now that you're a nominee, do you think you'll be able to hire a bigger crew? (laughs) Is that how it works? No. (laughs) This is a big bone of contention with what we do. And there's kind of two factors, East Coast versus West Coast. East Coast, you get a project, you immediately get a coordinator, set deck coordinator, who does all of the billing, who does the invoices, who does research, who begins the art clearance 
portion of the program and they assist you and the entire team, basically. So there's the coordinator in New York. You'll get your assistant set decorator and two buyers, plus the lead man, which is basically your right arm. And they do the logistics of picking up all the stuff that you found and bringing it to set and managing the crews who are going to dress the set with you. West Coast, you have to really fight for those buyers. And if you've got a script that's got 200 sets or 250 sets, there's no way that you can do this by yourself. I mean, it's awful. Just the weight of thinking about how you're going to find all these things. So on the last film I had, it was pretty big. I had an assistant set decorator, two buyers and a coordinator and a PA. And it was fantastic. But on other big shows, I've only had one buyer and always a coordinator because they do so much work. And you've got to have that support. But I think just because you're nominated doesn't mean like, oh, no, I only do films that are 100, 100 million or more. You're not going to um, get your own private trailer on set? Yeah, no. no. I mean, I'll still probably go do a tiny $5 million film because the script is so good. That, that makes a huge difference. Script is really everything. It really is. And that's how I choose my projects. If, if I would pay to go see it, then I'm going to work on it. So that's kind of yeah. my criteria. Yeah. Or if I really need to work and I, you know, I just, you know how it is. Well, I mean, there are some movies you go to and you think, what? No, I've done a few of those too. (laughs) We won't name names. But listen, I love movies and television. They have been my savior during this past year. I mean, I love them constantly my whole life. But really, during this last year, they have saved mine and many, many people I know lives. And you guys, I can't thank you enough for doing this because you really spark so many dreams and so many ideas. And I know so many designers have, look to movie sets. You are leaders in style and really bring so much richness to people's lives. I think maybe you don't even realize that that's true. And I just know that our listeners are going to love this. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time. Hold up. 